Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. This is Pastor Julie Lewis from Asbury United Methodist Church in Smyrna, Delaware, where we share the love of God and the good news of Jesus Christ in all we do. Good morning, this is Pastor Julie, and we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters will have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, is writing to tell them how to be the church, how to live out the witness of the gospel in the world right where they are planted. <clears throat> they seem to be getting confused about what is important. They are trying to jockey for position by claiming specific disciples to follow. We are the church. Does it matter who we claim to follow as leaders in the church? Or does it only matter that we all follow Jesus Christ? I think you know the answer. Paul is saying that the church is God's farm, and he paid a heavy price for that farm. Every acre of it was bought with blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus Christ, who was beaten, tortured, and finally nailed to a cross as a ransom for our souls. The church is also the kingdom of God, and we become a member of it, by the grace of God, when we claim faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God in his grace and mercy saw what we could be and poured out his love on that field, that farm that we call the church. As each soul professes faith in Jesus Christ, this field bears good fruit. But he expects a good harvest. And as workers with God, we work for that harvest through our obedience our love and our praise as we share the love of God in order to bring people to Christ. When we enter into God's kingdom through faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit becomes our guide, our teacher, and the one who transforms us from the inside out to become the people, the farmers God has created us to be. We learn to live by the Spirit in order to make a difference in the kingdom of God and in the world. As members of the family of God, we call the church, we all have the same purpose, to plant 
and water the seeds so that God can do his work and make them grow, increasing the harvest. If we are not willing to live by the Spirit, then we are working against God instead of working with God. And we know that farming is a hard job. There isn't too much that's easy about it. It's the same in the church. The work we do are called to do for Christ to go into the world and make disciples of all nations is not an easy job. It's hard work, and the hard work begins in us. The transformation has to begin in us before we can do work that will bear fruit in the kingdom of God. And that transformation can only happen when we allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Now this morning, I want to share the example of a spiritual giant who learned to live by the Spirit, allowed the Holy Spirit to transform him, and in doing so, changed the world for good. Now, most everyone here has heard about Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa that died in 2013. Most of us know about his fight against apartheid and the oppression of the black South Africans by white Afrikaners. Most probably knew that he was in prison with a life sentence for treason, but walked out of prison a free man after 25 years. Most people will know that he became the president of South Africa, and many saw him as a great man. And I'm not going to talk about his fight for civil and human rights today. What made this man so great was not his status or his tenacity to lead the nation, but his ability to live by the Spirit and allow it to change his heart. It was allowing the soil of his own heart to be changed that allowed him to be transformed into the leader, the great man he became. He was born on July 18, 1918, in a village in South Africa's Cape province. His given African name, which I can't pronounce, meant troublemaker. And indeed he was. His mother was a devout Christian and sent him to a local Methodist school when he was about seven. While there, he was baptized in the Methodist church and given the Christian name Nelson by his teacher. Later on, Christianity became a large part of his life, faithfully attending church services on Sundays with his guardians. He attended a Methodist mission school as a teenager, where he studied English, history, and geography. In his later years, he would credit the Methodist church for the important role it had played in his life and the support it had given to stop apartheid. The Methodist Church was so supportive that it was deemed an illegal organization by the South African government for 10 years. He was arrested in his early 40s and was put in prison, given a sentence of five years for incitement to riot and leaving the country without a passport. During this sentence, he was tried again for treason with others in his group and given a life sentence. The group of political prisoners was sent to Robben Island Prison where, and given hard labor, first breaking rocks into gravel and then cutting limestone out of a quarry. He lived in an eight-by-seven-foot cell, and he had only a straw mat to sleep on. Prisoners were physically and verbally harassed by the prison guards, the warders. The limestone would reflect the light, and they were not allowed sunglasses for a long time. By the time they finally allowed them, Mandela's eyesight was permanently damaged. 
He was forbidden to have newspapers and other reading materials, so when he was found with a newspaper clipping, he would be placed in solitary confinement. <clears throat> As a Class D prisoner, the lowest classification, he was allowed only one visit and one letter every six months. At some point, he developed tuberculosis from the dank cell. With perseverance and outside help, things slowly improved so that by 1975, he was allowed to get more letters and visits and to start a garden. But it was still prison. Now, maybe some of you have been in prison. I have not, and I will be just fine if I never go there except to visit. They tell me prison changes you, and I can see how being confined, having your freedom taken away, and other people having power over you and every aspect of your life might do that. Prison changed Mandela, too. The interesting thing is that we might think it would change people by making them bitter or angry, sad and depressed, maybe suicidal, but not Mandela. Anthony Sampson says in his biography of Mandela that in prison, Mandela was stripped of all his political trappings and confined with his colleagues every day. In this environment, he was able to stand back, take a good look at himself, and see himself as others saw him. It was through this imprisonment that he was able to learn to control his temper and strong will, to learn to empathize, to persuade, and through these skills to extend his influence and authority. His friends working beside him day after day became the mirrors who could help him see himself truthfully. One of his greatest strengths was that he could admit his weaknesses. His time in the church and with some of his friends gave him the ability to see the best in everyone. And these two points laid the foundation for the man he would become. While in prison, he learned to find common ground with those who disagreed with him. He spent time building relationships with other people who were not like him. He treated others the way he would want to be treated and included people in things so they wouldn't feel left out or isolated. He took care of the sick and did his best to encourage others, even the warders who didn't always treat him very well. He believed that to respond to them in their own terms was to come down to their level, and to do that was ultimately to fail. He wasn't perfect, though, and on a few occasions he lost his temper and launched into venomous tirades. But he was always ashamed that he had let go of his control. He would remember his failures and work harder after them. When he was finally released from prison, he intentionally sought out and met with his jailers and the white Afrikaners who had imprisoned him and forgave them. He was criticized by the black population who were astonished by his actions. But he simply replied, courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. He understood that reconciliation must be accompanied by transformation. And it was not a simple question of forgiveness. The atrocities committed under apartheid were second only to the Holocaust, and so he needed to find a way to forgive without forgetting, a way to face up to the truth. So when he was elected president, he set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, whose sole job was to get to the truth and speak it out loud 
so that healing could begin. It was not about justice at this point, only about the truth. As a man of faith, he knew that only the truth could set you free. Episcopal Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Methodist preacher Alex Borain headed up the committee. It was a huge step in beginning the work of reconciliation and healing that the nation needed to move forward. The greatness of this man came with his willingness to serve and to change. He avoided using the word I and stated time and time again that he was a servant of the people he represented. He went into negotiations with the attitude that there should be no winners or losers. And he was always ready to change his opinion if he was shown a better way. Those of us who have seen the movie Invictus know that the title is also the title of a poem by W.E. Henley that Mandela often quoted while in prison. It helped him remember that he could not change his circumstances, but he could change his reaction to them. <clears throat> it goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And on forgiveness, he said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. For Christians, his example reminds us that we have a choice. We can allow the world and its wisdom to set our course, or we can allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. We can live by the world's standards, or we can live by God's standards. Our souls themselves are God's field. When we are living by the world standards and in the sin that keeps us in prison, our souls are like wastelands that have no life in them. When we come to Christ, we allow the Holy Spirit to work within us, transforming the wastelands of our soul into fruitful gardens. But it takes work, soul-searching work. Nelson Mandela was a great man. But that greatness came from allowing the spirit to transform him from the inside out. He learned and put into practice that in God's kingdom, the last will be first and will be a servant of all. His efforts to bring reconciliation and forgiveness were founded on the grace and love of God that tells us we are all equal in his sight and all are sinners in need of grace. He was willing to let the Holy Spirit cultivate the garden of his heart and free him from the weeds of hate and anger, of bitterness and prejudice. He often said that he was not a saint, but simply a sinner who keeps on trying. He also knew that no matter how hard he worked, he might not actually see the rewards of his labor in his lifetime. But he kept on trying. He kept on working to forgive and to bring about reconciliation. Jesus did not show his power on earth in the way the world would expect. He did not come with a mighty army or the status of an earthly king. His power was shown through his willingness to become a servant to all. Jesus invites us to see ourselves and others for who we really are.
valued, loved, and respected children of God, sinners in need of grace, and invites us to change, to learn to live by the power of the Spirit, to work in the fields so that the world will be transformed. Mandela changed the world through his love of God because he lived by the Spirit living within him. Jesus invites us to work with him in changing the world. And in order to do that, we, like Mandela, start by taking a good look at ourselves, see our own sins, and repent. Then we can go into the world as children of God, forgiven and free, and begin to learn to live by the Spirit. As we do, we will learn to work with God in the fields, sharing God's love with all. And as the harvest comes in, we will reap the bountiful rewards of a life lived with God. So today we begin by asking ourselves, how does the world see me? What needs to change in our lives? Are we holding on to a grudge for something done in the past? Are we able to see all, even those who may have done us harm, as people Jesus is calling us to love and serve? Together, we can change the world through forgiveness of ourselves and of others. And by continually working for reconciliation, we can make a difference by showing love to people the world sees as unlivable. It can be tragic and deadly when people don't feel they are loved. Jesus tells us to love others as we love ourselves. Take a moment and call to mind a person you find particularly hard to love. Maybe it's someone who has harmed you personally, or someone you love, or someone you just don't like. And as you call them to mind, I want you to have the courage to ask the Spirit to help you forgive them. Help open your heart and see them as someone loved by God. Forgiving is not forgetting, but releasing the bitterness we have in our hearts for them. And if you are led, please feel free to come and pray for them at the altar during this last hymn or after the service. As you pray for them, I'll be praying for you too, that God will cultivate the harvest of forgiveness in your hearts, that your heart will be changed. Release that bitterness and pray for them. We are only workers in the field. Let's plant some seeds of forgiveness and reconciliation together today. Then step back and watch what God will do as we work together to live by the Spirit. Amen.